We are in a little mid-winter series. This is the third week of four in which we're looking at some stories from our Old Testament, stories that need to be brought out and pondered and read and carried around in our lives and thought about among those things that influence who we are and what we do. These stories have some things in common. They're all from Genesis. They all involve one of the four patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They each provide a picture of faith from the Old Testament. They Each of them foreshadow the work of Christ in different ways, and they're all dramatic narratives. And uh, as, we, as we keep going through these stories, I hope that you sense my enthusiasm for them. Uh, today's passage is particularly mysterious. Maybe it's one of the most mysterious passages that we have in our Bibles, uh, but it's also one of the most wonderful. And it was this passage that prompted me to, to think about these series, uh, this series or do this series, Uh, mainly because I wanted to spend some time here. We're in Genesis 32. Go ahead and find it if you would. Genesis 32, we'll be looking at 11 verses. This is by far the shortest passage that we'll look at. We'll start in verse 22, and we'll go all the way to the end of the passage. We've been looking at Abraham in the last two messages. Remember, Abraham trusted God in chapter 12. And God promised him a a land, a seed, that is a descendant, and a blessing. Abraham responded in faith, and that faith in God's promise was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham struggled with doubt, didn't he? He struggled to make good in his daily life on his faith, and he often failed. But as he failed, he also grew. And last week in Genesis 22, we saw the great test where God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac, and Abraham was willing to do that. And, uh, and, and in response to his obedience, this blessing was reaffirmed in his life. Uh, we saw Isaac a little bit last week. Isaac lived a, uh, a long and uneventful life, and he's often overshadowed in the biblical stories by his father Abraham and his son Jacob. Isaac was, for the most part, faithful. He repeated some of the errors of his father, um, but he lived to be blessed and then to pass on that blessing. Isaac is also uh, important because of what he represents as, uh, as he was the son of promise that God had promised Abraham, and uh, he's often silent. And uh, today, again, we'll, we'll, we'll see him, we'll sense him, but not exactly see him. Uh, We'll be talking about Jacob today. Uh, This story takes place toward the end of the account of Jacob's life. And as we'll see, there's been lots of water under the bridge from chapter 22. And the question we really need to ask is, how is Jacob getting along with the family blessing? This passage that we'll read takes place as Jacob is preparing to meet Esau, his older brother, after a period of long estrangement, and we'll see what happens. Uh, Let's drop down right into the middle of it. We're in, like we said, Genesis 32, beginning in verse 
22. Follow along as I read, and then we'll break it down together. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob is up to his old tricks in this passage. And we'll notice as we move into the passage that his striving has resulted in his being alone. We'll look first at verses 22 through the first part of 24. Jacob had been a heel grabber. From the beginning, remember the story in chapter 25, he was born as the younger of uh, a set of twins to Isaac and Rebekah, and he came out holding the heel of his older brother Esau, and his parents must have thought this was just terribly cute. Uh, They named him Jacob, which means may God protect, but it sounds like the word overreacher. One who attacks from behind. Heel grabber. And the the sound of his name came to define who he was as a person. Jacob proved a favorite of his mother's, while Esau became the favorite of his father, Isaac. And Jacob strove his entire life for his father's affection and blessing. When they'd become young men... Esau was, as you remember, a a secular, unspiritual man, and Jacob tricked him into exchanging his birthright for a bowl of soup. And it could be, this, this is where we get our expression, he doesn't care beans about this or that. Beans were worth more to him than his birthright, Esau. Later, when Isaac was old, Jacob brought game to his father and he dressed up to impersonate his brother just to hear his father pronounce 
the family blessing on him. It's a crazy little scene. He couldn't have thought that he could get away with this for five minutes. But he wanted to hear that blessing. That was chapter 27. Esau was enraged, of course, and Jacob is sent outside the land of promise to his uncle Laban. On his way, chapter 28, God appeared to Jacob at Bethel. And God promised that he, Jacob, will possess the blessing promised to his grandfather Abraham. Land, descendants, a blessing through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, Jacob really meets his match in Laban. And as you remember, chapters 28, 29, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he agrees to work for seven years in exchange for her hand in marriage. But Laban tricks him. He ends up marrying uh, marrying Leah. And then he has to work, of course, another seven years in order to marry uh, the daughter he wanted to marry, Rachel. Uh, but Jacob gets him back. And in a brilliant, crafty, and scientific exercise involving what we call genetic engineering, these ancients were no dummies, by the way, Uh, Jacob figures out a way to build up his stock by harvesting the strong genes of the livestock for himself while leaving Laban with the weak genes, thus depleting Laban's stock. And in 30.42, we read this verse, So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Jacob is always striving to be strong. Well, Laban becomes angry with Jacob, as you might imagine, and Jacob has to flee. And in 31.3, we read, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob takes his abundant wealth. He's all sorts of livestock now. Everything, everything that, a, that, a, that a rich man in that day could want to have. He has lots of children, two wives. They have servants. And he, and he takes all of this and he crosses back over the Euphrates River, back into the land of promise. But as he's headed toward his home, his servants, chapter 32 now, meet him, and they say, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Now, what is Jacob thinking here? He's going to destroy me. He's been mad all these years, and now it's coming out. 400 men, Esau is going to take everything I have, plunder me, and kill me. So Jacob, he's, he's good at trickery. He continues his striving. He divides his herds in half. The thinking being, if Jacob finds one of them, he'll probably think he's got everything. He'll take everything, kill everybody, and I'll still have half of my stuff. So he, he does that. And then he, he takes additional livestock and he sends them as, he sends them in waves as gifts to Esau. So Esau is going to find half of his stock. And then he's going to start getting all of these gifts. And maybe he'll be placated and not quite so angry when I meet him. And then he camps on the far side of the river Jabbok. And he sends across his children and his wives. They go on ahead of him. Jacob's striving now 
has brought him to the point of isolation. And now as Jacob prepares to cross over to meet his brother, he spends the night alone with God. Our, our, our text here is so sparse. There's not a lot of detail here. When we're told that he's alone, the author wants us to know he is alone. He is isolated. He is spending the night alone with God. And there's an important application point that we need to carry along at this point. Uh, you know, at Faith Bible Church, we're all about community. The Christian life is lived Together, And that's why we have adult ed classes and community groups and lots of different ways that you can get to know people in smaller groups, groups smaller than the big gathering here. But when we come to the end of ourselves, we must do business with God alone. Right? Not to say that it's not important to travel together. But at the end of ourselves, we have to meet God as individuals. Uh, for example, if you need surgery, you can stand up in this group and we encourage you to do that. Share what's going on in your life and Pastor Brian will come out and pray with you. Maybe our deacons will come alongside of you. But at the end of the day, you're the one going in under the gas by yourself. We're not going to come back into the operating room with you. You'll have to be with God alone in that experience. And at the end of our lives, each of us will stand before God alone. We can't come with you when you stand there and give an account of your life and talk about how you have responded or not responded in faith to Jesus Christ. Jacob is alone. Second part of verse 24 and 25, Jacob's striving, we'll see here, brought him finally to weakness. Second part of verse 24. This just comes, <laughs> this just comes out of the page from nowhere. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. There's a word play here in the text that we almost completely lose in the English. Hebrew is what's called a tri-radical language. Most words are built on three consonants. And then you just kind of dress up the word with the vowels. But the consonants are kind of the, the root of the word. The three consonants, there are three consonants that are in play here. The, the one that sounds like ya. The ones that sounds like b or v, and the one that sounds like k. Listen to Jacob's name. It would be pronounced Yaakov. Do you hear it? Ya, b, k. The place, the river Jabak, would sound to the Hebrew ear like Yabak. Ya, b, k. The action that we translate with the word wrestle is the word yevek. These three sounds are, are throughout this passage, and, and they, to the ear, they, they tie the whole passage together. And, and this root, these three consonants, 
they carry the meaning of to get dusty. Jacob is getting dusty with this man as he strives in a dusty place. Everything about this passage points to Jacob's striving. This man now is standing in his way. Won't let him pass. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with the man. And so picture the scene here. He's all night long, he's wrestling with this nameless, faceless man who's standing in his way. He wants to get past the man to continue his striving. He's got this plan, right? The man is not going to let him do it. And at this point, the question that's really screaming to be answered is, who is this man? There is a mysterious figure that appears throughout the Old Testament who is called either the angel of God or the angel of the Lord. And remember, the word angel just means messenger here. The the angel of God or the angel of the Lord claims divine authority in different places, exhibits divine attributes, in other words, he knows everything, He performs divine actions, such as leading Israel into the land of promise. He receives divine homage. In other words, he allows himself to be worshipped, which is very significant. And finally, he identifies himself as God. We didn't have time to talk about it last week, but remember... Back in Genesis 22, the messenger, the angel who came and stood between Abraham and Isaac, uh, listen to what he says in Genesis 22, 15 and 16. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you because you have obeyed my voice. A last fact about the angel of the Lord. His appearances grow more seldom as we approach the coming of Christ. Until when Jesus does finally enter the scene, we have another angel who introduces himself as Gabriel and explains that he is he, he stands in the presence of the Lord. He is not the Lord. I believe we're looking here in this man at the pre-incarnate Christ come in the form of man, not the flesh of man. I don't know that it would be inaccurate to say that this is Jesus, but I'm just not comfortable saying that. He hasn't taken on flesh yet. And yet at the same time, there wouldn't be anything inappropriate with expecting to find Christ 
in the Old Testament. Listen to how Colossians 1 talks about Christ. For, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ has always been there. And here he is superintending the affairs of the covenant for his Old Testament people. But we need to ask another question. How would the pre-incarnate Christ not be able to prevail here? I mean, if Christ is here wrestling, I would expect, boom, he pins him. (laughs) This week I came home and I said, Boys, uh, Daddy needs a sermon illustration. Got two boys, eight and five, and I said, Get down on the floor, we're going to wrestle. And so, uh, I, just to confirm what I thought, I got flat on my back, and I said, I want you boys to pin me. We're going to arm wrestle. You each take an arm, and I'm going to try to, to win this arm. Now, I'm going to lay flat on my back, and then you're going to get to stand up. So, little Henry is maybe 40 pounds. And it happened as about like I thought it would. If I surrender my advantage and I lie flat on my back and they get to stand up and use their full leverage and their full weight, even little Henry can win an arm wrestling contest. And I think what we have here is a foreshadowing of Jesus' limiting of himself at the incarnation. Remember, Jesus entered our world, his world, taking on the weakness of our flesh. And he took on a real body, a, a real human body, such that if you fill it full of nails and you nail it to a cross and you leave the body on the cross, the body will die. And so here you have the pre-incarnate Christ, the man, wrestling with Jacob, toying with him, uh, limiting himself and allowing Jacob to just sort of strive himself out. Until the sun starts to come up. And then the man weakens Jacob. After striving all night, he just, bing, touches him. The word can mean to touch or to slap, but it doesn't mean hit with force. He just touches him right in the the hip socket and Jacob is instantly disabled. And and I believe he realizes who he's dealing with here. This is God. And, And Jacob is converted here. He understands that this being who has been toying with him all night has infinite power. And he knows who his adversary is and he submits in faith. And in fact, we learn something important here about faith. Faith is the recognition of our own weakness and the embracing of the strength of another. And those of us who have trusted in Christ have done this. We've quit striving. We've recognized that Jesus has done what needs to be done for us to come to God. And by trusting in him, we surrender any claim that we have to our own strength, and we come to him in his strength.
Well, verses 26 through 32, Jacob's striving ended in blessing. And we'll notice here that there are four quick exchanges in this section. The man initiates each one and Jacob responds. And then at the end of the third exchange, Jacob tries to take the initiative and it doesn't go very well for him. Quick conversation. Listen to how it goes. In the first exchange, it's about the source of blessing. The man says, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, he fought the man before to get past him. But now he's clinging to him. It's as though he were saying, I I tried to get blessing for myself, and now I realize that you had it all along. Not letting you go. You're the one who can bless me. That blessing I've been seeking my whole life. Second exchange, verse 27. Here we, we learn about the condition of blessing. The man says, what is your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. (laughs) This is not just an introduction here. Remember what Jacob means. Heel grabber. One who strives. In acknowledging his name, Jacob is acknowledging that he's been striving his whole life and he's confessing that he's a striver. Third exchange, verses 28 through the first part of 29. Here we learn about dominion, ownership even. The man says, your your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Remember that the one who names exercises dominion. Think of Adam naming the animals. He was in charge. He got to name them. Or even think about our own children. We get to name the children because that indicates at least stewardship. The man names him. He says, your name shall be Israel. Israel means God contends or one who strives with God. You've beaten men and were it not for God's mercy, you'd persist in having your own way with God. As well. Jacob's response to this. Please tell me your name. (laughs) I think he knows who he's dealing with. But he wants to hear his name. But of course there's power in knowing someone's name. And the man responds to this. Fourth exchange. Second part of verse 29. Here we see mercy. The man says, why is it that you ask my name. And this answer reminds me of another exchange with God in Exodus, which would have just happened at the writing of Genesis here. Remember when Moses met God in front of the burning bush and he says, Who shall I say has sent me? In other words, what is your name? Give me your name so that we can understand you. And, and God doesn't do it, does he? He says, Tell them I am has sent you. 
the one who exists, the only true God. That's all you need to know, and that's all they need to know. And then the man blessed him. And here's Jacob's response, second part of verse 29 again. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun comes up, the man is gone. Jacob realizes what has happened. He knows that when you see God, you're supposed to die. But he didn't. There was mercy there. And then in verses 31 and 32, Jacob limps off to meet Esau, having discovered God in weakness. And then we're given a little tradition here about the tendon and Jews not eating eating that would be more interesting to the first readers than it is to us. Flip the page, if you would, or at least in... It's a page flip in my Bible. Over to Genesis 33. What happens, by the way, when Jacob and Esau finally meet? This is also significant. Verse 4 of chapter 33. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And then down to verse 8. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Once Jacob had found blessing through weakness and made vertical peace with God, he was free to make peace on the horizontal plane of human relationships. Did you notice that? Once he was blessed, once he quit his striving, once he met God in weakness, then he was free for the first time ever, maybe, to deliver a blessing. The result of Jacob's striving was the receiving of the blessing of God while experiencing weakness in the presence of God. And before we move on to apply this, let's let's think for a second about the significance of what we've just read. Blessing through weakness separates the gospel from every other religion as well as every other form of traditional religion, be it Christian or otherwise. This is really exceptional. You know, every other religion in the world has you doing something to win God's blessing. Just name another religion and then think about what you have to do to achieve salvation, whether it's keeping the five pillars or achieving nirvana or or what. Only in the gospel does God bring about blessing by taking on the weakness of our flesh to die for us in the person of Jesus. And only in the gospel do we then respond in weakness, the weakness of faith, to find victory and blessing one for us. By another. Jacob didn't do anything 
but receive the blessing by faith, and neither do we. I have a, a dear lady in my neighborhood, my wider neighborhood, that I've been talking to. Not as faithfully as I should, but spring is coming, we'll be outside again. And her conclusion on the matter is that, you know, it's all about being a good person. Christian, yeah, she'd identify with our faith, but that's not the gospel. Do you hear the striving in that statement? It's all about being a good person. Oh, how good do I have to be and how many more good things do I have to do? There's striving in that statement. It's not the gospel. God's blessing replaces my striving when I come to God in weakness and by faith. There was an application here for Israel. As the the nation was camped in the wilderness preparing to enter into the land, they needed to remember as they prepared to cross into the land of promise that their strength would not be as the strength of other nations. Building up an army, gathering chariots, gathering horses, making alliances. Uh, They couldn't have imagined making an alliance with Egypt at that point, but they finally did. That's not going to be their strength. Instead, we get verses like Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. There's also an application for us as New Testament believers on this side of the cross. Remember what Jacob asked the man? Please tell me your name. That's what he wanted to know. We know his name, and his name is Jesus, isn't it? And at the crack of morning after the long, dark night of the soul... When we finally come to the end of ourselves, the risen Lord will meet us next to the tomb where we've died with him, and he will bless us. And then we will walk with a limp, most of us. Between this time of Jesus' two comings, the time we live in, The most joyous, victorious, fruitful, powerful Christians are at the same time the most beautifully broken. And until Jesus comes back for us, we're going to walk with a limp. And one of the great truths of our life with Christ is that that inner limp that we carry along, it's it's not a sign of God's scourging, but a sign of having met with God and been changed by Him. Where do you strive with God? If you're realizing right now that your mode of operation in relation to God has always been one of performance, You've been trying to be strong to win his approval, maybe. It's very possible that you've never trusted in Christ by faith. And the Lord himself would invite you. Come to me. I came to you in weakness in the person of Jesus. And now release your striving. Meet me in weakness 
trust me. Uh, Maybe you've trusted him, but you're still trying to wrestle something from him, to earn something from him. In that case, let Christ's victory be your strength. Meet him in weakness and by faith. God's blessing replaces my striving when I come to God in weakness and by faith. A good message from a wonderful text.